0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's good to have all of you here with us. If you're a young child and want to hang out with more kids, Miss Jeannie is here in the back uh, if you would like to go hang out with her. Uh, If you are here with me this morning, uh, it is great to have you. My name's Aaron and just really excited about the opportunity to open up God's Word with you. We're going to be in John chapter 12. So if you do have your copy of the scriptures, I do invite you to turn with me there uh, to John 12. We'll begin in about verse 37 or so. And we've been kind of going through the gospel according to John for a few months now. And before we get into the exact sort of passage we'll be looking at, again, we'll be starting in John 12, verse 37. Let me take a step back and kind of frame what John has been doing or what John is doing in his gospel. See, John has masterly crafted his narrative, his biography of Jesus around these signs, these signs, these miraculous, powerful events that Jesus has done. Things like Back in chapter 2, turning water into wine. Or later on, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Or most recently, we saw in chapter 11, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And up until this point in John's narrative, here in chapter 12, there's been six of these signs. But there's going to be one more to follow, making a total of seven, being Jesus' resurrection. So these seven signs are kind of like how John has framed his book. And John has done this intentionally because later on in the, in the second to last chapter of John's gospel, John 20, John says this, that these signs. So at this point, the seven that you will have read about in John's gospel, these signs were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So John's not trying to hide his motives here as to why he's written the gospel of John. John wants to convince you, the reader, or you, the listener, to believe something. To believe that Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, abundant, eternal life in his name. So that's kind of the premise, the reason why John is writing his gospel. But as we come to our text here in John 12, we come to this point where it's kind of towards the end of Jesus's public ministry. The next few chapters, Jesus is going to spend in private with some of his closest apprentices in the upper room. But here at the end of chapter 12, this is kind of his last sort of public appearance, if you will, before the passion narrative. And at this point, people aren't believing in Jesus. There's a contingency here of, of, of a group of people who have, will see hard hearts and not responding to the mess of Jesus. They're not believing. And it's at this point, you kind of ask the question, well, all these things that Jesus has done, is Jesus failing? Is his mission not going forward the way it's supposed to? What's happening? Why do the people not respond? Why do they not believe? Well, for Jesus and John, this isn't a surprise at all. In fact, this sort of pattern where God demonstrates his openness, his, his pursuit of people, his desire to be with people, to save people, yet people responding in some sort of rejection is actually a pattern that's seen throughout the scriptures. And that's why here beginning in verse 37, John is going to start off by quoting from two passages from the book of Isaiah, kind of highlighting that this has been foreshadowed and everything that's happened through this point in the gospel of John is actually following on course. So let's kind of pick up the narrative here. John 12, starting in verse 37, we read this. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs, so again, this point, six signs in their presence, They still would not believe in him. This unbelief was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, and so he's about to quote Isaiah 6 right here Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes, He has hardened their hearts. So that they can neither see with their eyes, don't understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that section there, I was a bit alarmed, right? This idea, like, God hardening hearts, God blinding eyes, I mean, that kind of doesn't sit well with me, at least on a first reading. Like, this is kind of like, you know, as a parent, you tell your kids, hey, don't spill your cereal and then your parent, and then you as the parent go and spill the cereal on purpose for the kid, and then you get mad at the kid for doing something like they didn't do. It's like, what's the point? Like, where is the compassion in that? Like, is that, what, is that what's happening here in this text? Like, this is important, right? Like, it, we're talking about the character of God. Is God compassionate or is God capricious? Like, how does this all play out? God hardening hearts, God blinding eyes. Like, what does that say about God in the scriptures? Well, kind of let's pause here and kind of work into this, wait into this a little bit. And before we kind of take a, a, a stab at the actual text, here, let's kind of take a step back and see like what John is actually doing here. See, John isn't just quoting random Bible verses just from anywhere in the Old Testament. He's quoting, like I said earlier, from two key passages in the Isaiah scroll. The first is from Isaiah 53. These are kind of part of the central section of Isaiah, the suffering servant poems. These poems, these, these long chapters in the book of Isaiah in the, cha- in the 50s or so, that declare this prophetic word of this messianic suffering servant that one day would come and suffer on behalf of God's people and then usher in God's kingdom, God's peace, and shalom. And the second section that Isaiah is quoting from, the one that's specifically about hard hearts and blinding eyes, is from Isaiah 6. And in Isaiah 6, it's that passage where in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah sees Yahweh, the God of Israel, high and lifted up on his throne, the creatures around God's throne are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah responds with, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now what's important to understand is that in both passages, the suffering servant section in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, with the vision of Yahweh high and lifted up on his throne, in both of these sections, similar language is used. Language like high and lifted up and glory in language about how God is pursuing and going after his people and wanting to give forgiveness and grace. Similar language is used in both chapters, yet at the same time, there's a response of rejection on the part of God's people. So in both sections, it's not as if God is not trying to pursue. No, God is indeed attempting to pursue and bring people into his family. That's kind of the basic premise that we have to understand in both of these texts. But then specifically though, how do we make sense of the specific language where it directly says he has hardened their hearts? Like, what do we, what do we do about that? Now, again, let's kind of take a step back. See, Isaiah is not, or John and Isaiah aren't just using hard hearts as some sort of random phrase. That phrase to harden hearts is a very intentional phrase that is rooted in Israel's foundation story. All the way back at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, the second book, of our scriptures, the Exodus story. See, hard hearts is kind of like, you know, this, this analogy just might completely fall short, but let's go with it anyway. If I say something like, Luke, I am your father, what, what movie just popped into the back of your head? Star Wars, right? Like we had, that's a cultural phrase that means something to us, right? But if I say, beam me up, Scotty, you know, like it's another kind of cultural phrase that resonates with us. And similarly, and it's not a perfect analogy, but this idea of hardening hearts is like this glowing blue hyperlink that you just saying like, click me, click me. And it's going to take you all the way back to the Exodus story. And there's a key character throughout the narrative of the Exodus that has a hard heart. And who is that? Pharaoh, right? And so this, all this imagery, even John 12, the setting of John 12 is taking place during Passover. The Jewish feast that commemorates the Exodus. So Exodus language is just floating around during this time. So when you read that phrase, hard hearts, think Exodus, think Pharaoh. And if you go back to the Exodus story, about 20 times, depending on your English translation, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And about 10 of those times, about half of those times, it explicitly says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh is rebellious, not going along with God's desire to liberate the slaves out of Egypt, and Pharaoh hardens his own heart about half the time. But about the other half of those times, language seems to be implying and foreshadowing and and talking about how God is allowing Pharaoh to go down the path that he has already chosen for himself, and thus you'll read portions of the Exodus narrative that say God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? So the question is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh or God? And the answer is yes, <laughs> right? It's just, it, and if you kind of sit in that tension, I think we're getting to where the biblical writers are wanting us to be a little bit. See, it's, it's very similar, though, to the ministry of Jesus. So in a way, let me say this carefully, God, in a way, yes, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in a similar way, kind of, sort of, yes, Jesus is hardening people's hearts. But the question, though, is how? How is Jesus hardening people's hearts? How is that process taking place? Well, it's through Jesus' grace and compassion and pursuit of people. And that people are seeing Jesus' heart be revealed, Jesus' desire for relationship, Jesus' desire for forgiveness, and are stuck in their own ways. And as Jesus' heart is being exposed, so are other people's hearts. Their stubbornness, their pride, their desire to stay with the status quo, whatever the case may be. Because in the Exodus, think about this, over and over and over again, God is pursuing and inviting through his presence, through his openness, to, through Moses, through Aaron, to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let these people experience freedom. Let, this, let these people no longer experience oppression and injustice. And it's God's compassionate heart that is being revealed throughout the book of Exodus in the early sections there, that it exposes Pharaoh's hard heart. As God's compassionate heart is being revealed, Pharaoh's hard heart thus is also revealed at the same time. And thus Pharaoh continues down that path. And I think a very similar thing is happening here. That's why John brings these Isaiah passages up that connect us back to the Exodus story. So that we might understand that as Jesus is doing all these signs that we read about earlier, is pursuing all of these people, inviting anyone to come, Jesus' heart, Jesus revealing the Father's heart is actually exposing some of the pride and the stubbornness that's already within the human heart. And so we have this this picture here of Jesus's compassion, revealing the father's love is actually exposing some of the pride and stubbornness of the people. Now, I totally get that there might be more questions around that. This is a very kind of difficult topic to talk about. And I would love to chat with you more maybe after the gathering about it. No way, shape or form, do I think I have all the answers figured out about it, but I love talking about this stuff, the theology side of it, and would love to maybe chat more if you have more questions, perhaps maybe after the gathering about that. But there is some more of this text that we wanna kind of get through, picking up here in verse 42. Yet at the same time, even among the leaders, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. So on one hand, you have this group of people who have these hard hearts. And that Jesus' love and compassion is in a way kind of exposing their hard hearts. I think when we think about that phrase, hard hearts, it's again important to remember. There's this old Puritan phrase that was really helpful for me as I was preparing for this. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And that Jesus' love is kind of like that. It's melting people's hearts. It's softening people's hearts. It's bringing people closer to the Father. But then at the same time, it's exposing some of the pride and the stubbornness in other people. And here in verse 42, there's this group of people that actually kind of sort of believe. It actually says that they do believe. But then for this particular reason, for fear, for fear of the Pharisees and being put out of the synagogue, they would not openly live out their faith. Because Why? Well, the text says in the NIV, they love the praise of man more than the praise of God or more than the glory of God. It's actually the same word there. It's actually glory in both instances. Literally, it's that they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from the creator himself. And it's this kind of interesting kind of contrast that's happening there in verses 42 and 43. Or on one hand, here's a group of people that believe, but not really kind of, sort of. It just kind of, it seems a little off because they're not willing to openly live out their faith. And thus, they rather hang on to the human glory or go after the human glory and intention and praise and, and adoration rather than the glory and the weight and the importance that comes from the creator himself. And then what follows, though, is really interesting. Because again, this is kind of Jesus' sort of last public appearance before he goes into the upper room. And Jesus, starting in verse 44, is going to make kind of this one last public appeal, one last invitation. And I love how he starts. The text says in verse 44, Jesus cries out. I mean, just hear the, the invitation, the warmth of Jesus here. Anyone and anyone who he's crying out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Now, there's actually this really beautiful flow to this section here. Think about it, all the way towards the, be- the, the beginning of this passage. It starts off with a group of people that de- is described as having these hard hearts, this rejection of God. And again, remember the same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay. Jesus is pursuing these people, loving these people, yet their hearts are heart and they're rejecting God. But then it transitions though to the second group who kind of sort of believe, but aren't publicly willing to live out their faith. And then it concludes here with this final appeal. Jesus inviting whoever would believe in me, and the, and the implication is like, even if you've had a hard heart in the past, even if you're in that category of someone who's stubborn and not actually going in the way of Jesus, or maybe you're in that second category who you kind of sort of believe but aren't willing to openly live that out. Jesus' invitation in verse 44 is, whoever believes in me, come one, come all. No one is worthy, but all are welcome. Whoever would believe in me should no longer stay or remain in darkness but come and live in the light. And I love this about Jesus because regardless, hard heart, kind of sort of on the fence, not really wanting to publicly live it out, the invitation goes out to anyone and everyone. No matter what you come into this room with, the invitation of Jesus is for you. Whoever would believe is invited to no longer live in the darkness of our own lives and in this world, but to live in the transforming light and presence of God himself. And that invitation goes out to everyone. And as Jesus is kind of making this last appeal in these last few verses of chapter 12, Jesus is also reiterating some of the main themes and ideas that he's already talked about and discussed and taught on throughout our time through the gospel of John. I just want to highlight some of these sort of main things that Jesus is again reiterating almost for the kind of the last time before he spends the next few chapters in the upper room. And the first one that Jesus wants to reiterate is his own identity See, Jesus says in, in the text here that he's not just another rabbi or just another prophet. He is those things, but he's more. He says, if you believe in me, you believe not just in me, but the one who sent me. And if you see me, you not just see me, but you see the one who sent me as well. Jesus is claiming to be one with the father. And this isn't just like some you know, cute claim, Jesus claiming to be God. No, this is what constantly is getting the religious leaders ticked off, right? Earlier in in John 5, it was for this very reason that they tried to stone and kill Jesus because Jesus was declaring himself to be equal with God. And Jesus has come to embody and show what God is actually like. John chapter 1, right? The word of God became flesh and moves into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says, tabernacles among us. And that Jesus is what the Father has to say. And that Jesus comes to reveal what God is like. And Jesus comes as the embodiment of the one true God. And he wants everyone to understand that. That he's not just another teacher. He is a teacher, the best teacher that's ever walked this planet. He's not just another prophet. He is a prophet, but he's more than that. He is the embodiment of the creator God himself, inviting anyone and everyone, whoever, again, to come and to believe and to trust. But then this kind of leads into kind of one of the second things that Jesus is talking about. Is this these themes that he's reiterating. And this kind of goes along with the idea of Jesus's light in salvation. Think about it. Like what's Jesus's purpose as he comes here on earth? I mean, there's a lot we could definitely say about that, but specific to this text, what is Jesus wanting to accomplish? Well, he says, first, Jesus doesn't want anyone to continue to live in darkness. See, verse 46, Jesus has come as light and anyone who believes in him should no longer stay or remain in darkness, but come and live in light. This theme of light and darkness is something that constantly gets reiterated and repeated throughout the gospel according to John. And here Jesus is kind of this one last appeal is inviting anyone and everyone to no longer live in the darkness, but come and live in the light. That Jesus is inviting anyone and everyone to see the light and the goodness of God come and transform the broken places and spaces in your life and in my life and in our world. And that Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus has come to do. Again, back in John chapter one, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome it. I love that line: The darkness cannot overcome it. And for maybe for you this morning, you feel like there's pockets in your life that feel dark. They don't feel like there's any hope or any way forward, any way to experience hope or life or light. But the darkness cannot overcome that. The light has come in Jesus. And Jesus wants us to understand that his kingdom is the kingdom of light. Paul says in the book of Colossians, that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light and in, in Jesus, the one true God. And again, this invitation goes out to everyone. But also, it's not just that Jesus has come to bring light to the dark and broken places and spaces. Jesus also has come to save. He says that explicitly. I have not come, verse 47, to judge the world, but to what? Save it. I mean, Jesus could not be more clear on this point. I have not come to judge the world, but to save it. Again, those whose hearts would turn and trust and believe and align themselves with Jesus and his way will find themselves with a kingdom-shaped heart and align themselves with God's purposes and find themselves caught up in God's beautiful new creation. Again, Jesus has come to bring salvation. It's the same word used for healing throughout the Bible, to bring healing and salvation to our lives and to our world. But then Jesus is also very clear those who do not have and respond to the the kingdom invitation of Jesus will find themselves without a kingdom-shaped heart and thus be sort of on the outside, not wanting to participate, willingly, willingly choosing not to participate in God's plan of redemption. Which leads me to sort of this last theme that Jesus sort of echoes that's being reiterated here in these closing verses of John 12, and that's Jesus's faithfulness. Jesus' obedience. See, Jesus from the very beginning has said things like, I do what only the Father has told me to say and do. And that Jesus is faithfully following and, and obeying all that the Father has told him to say and to do. And I love what verse 50 says. Jesus says, I know that his, referring to the Father, that the Father's command leads to eternal life. And then he says, so whatever I say, is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus has this posture, whatever the Father says, that's what I'm gonna do. Whatever the Father has planned for me for that day, whatever the Father has directions for or insight for, whatever the Father wants me to do for this person or for that crowd, whatever the case may be, Jesus' posture is that of obedience, is that of faithfulness. And he says that his command his teaching, his instruction leads to, verse 50 again, eternal life. Now, when you, when you read that phrase, eternal life, don't just think, you know, that's something in the future, in the distance, that's something to look forward to after I didn't. No, eternal life in the gospel narratives in the New Testament is not just about the, the quantity of life in the future. It's about the quality of life in the midst of God's presence in the here and now and into the future. I love John Ortberg's latest book, Eternity is Now in Session. I love that title because he talks about how eternal life is not just something in the future, it's something that begins now in the present with God's abiding remaining presence in your life and in my life. And Jesus says that the father's instructions lead to that eternal, abundant, transformative life that he has on offer for you and I today. But think about it though, think about it. Where does Jesus's obedience lead him? Where does Jesus' faithfulness lead him? Well, just in a few chapters, Jesus is gonna be executed on a Roman cross. But Jesus says, I know that his command leads to eternal life. But this is the pattern that's set forth throughout the Christian worldview. Death followed by resurrection. Death followed by new life. And that begins this opportunity for all of us to begin to trust that that Jesus has paved the way for that death no longer gets the last word, but Jesus's, God's resurrection life and power and love get the final word. You know, and so there's, there's so much more we could talk about with this text. And I love how Jesus is kind of making, again, this one last final appeal. Whoever would believe in me, trust In me that I am here to bring light and salvation, that my faithfulness is what's going to lead the way forward. And you can trust in me as I follow the Father's commands. But as we begin to kind of think about how does this specifically speak to us in our everyday life with God, like what does this text then have to say? What does this text have to say to our moments and places and spaces with our everyday life with God as apprentices of Jesus? And again, there's a number of things that you know, kind of came into my mind as I was preparing and thinking about this, but I just wanted to focus on sort of three main ideas that all kind of center around this idea of belief. Kind of belief is kind of what holds these three together, but kind of from different angles. And the first one though, has to do with God's role in belief. And this kind of goes back a little bit to the beginning of this text, to those sort of alarming verses where God was like hardening hearts and blinding eyes. And I won't go back and do like the textual work again With that, but I just wanted to think about for a second, like for at least for me and maybe for you too, like what what is happening there when we read those passages? You know, we live in a very me centered culture, a very individualistic culture where it's all about me and my achievement. You know, we're trained at a very young age to think and believe that you can do whatever the heck you want as long as it feels good, as long as you're not hurting anybody. And life is just kind of revolves around the self. It's a me-centered world that we're swimming in. And so the point, though, is that when we come across passages like this in the, in the scriptures, where it seemingly takes all control out of our hands, and it's God just doing, it kind of seems like, again, on our first reading, God just doing whatever he wants, and you aren't actually in control, it kind of grates against our individualistic mindset a bit it kind of pushes against sort of that, no, I want to be in control. I want to have the ability to choose and do whatever the heck I want to do. Why is someone else, why is God doing all these things that go against what I want and what I feel? And I think it speaks a little bit to this idea that, you know what, who is at the center of the universe? Who is at the center of your life? who is the one that's ultimately in control and ruling and reigning on the throne high and lifted up? Is it you and whatever you might want to do? Is this life revolve around kind of whatever I want to do? I have have to ask myself that question. Is my life just revolving around my own plans and desires or is God actually at the center? Is Jesus actually at the center? ruling and reigning in that what he says, like what Jesus says, is what I want to follow and obey and do. You know, I mean, th- that question, who is at the center of the universe? I mean, that's, that's an easy question to maybe for us answer, like in, in church or in Sunday school. You know, God, right? Jesus. You know, easy one to answer, but practically in your own life, like when the rubber meets the road, who is at the center? Because if Jesus is not at the center, oftentimes then that leads to a heart that's further and further going away from what Jesus has for your life and my life. And practically this means to have a soft heart, to align our hearts with Jesus, to have him at the center. I think for me, and maybe this will be helpful for you, is to practically just pray things like Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Seek, see my heart. See if there be any wicked way within me. Cleanse me and lead me into the way everlasting. Or Psalm 51, David's confession, Create in me a new heart, renew a right spirit within me, coming before God, praying some of these Psalms or praying in a way that says, God, soften my heart. Do I recognize that I am a broken creature? Yes, made in God's image, called with purpose and dignity, but also dependent on a power and love outside of myself. Do I recognize that? Do I recognize that I need his transforming grace and presence in my life to soften and shape me and mold me into the image of Jesus? And as I trust and believe in him, God is wanting to do that in your life and in my life to shape our hearts, to shape our lives, to be more into the image of Jesus. You know, I love what, what James, Jesus' half-brother says, kind of, kind of similarly a- around this idea. You know, God, he says in James chapter one, basically that God's not the author of our evil choices and desires. He says this, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. See, God is not capricious. God is not just out there just to smite people and to be angry at people. No, God is pursuing and chasing after us. God is inviting all of us to come to be a part of his kingdom. And it's oftentimes our own evil desires that get in the way of that. It's our own willingness, our own will to choose, to go against God's plan and purposes that disalign ourselves with God's kingdom and what God has for us. The question though, as Jesus is after our hearts and our whole lives, is how will we respond? How will we respond to that gracious invitation? Which leads me to my kind of second point. This kind of has to do with the fear and the glory and the belief that was happening with the leaders. See, again, there's that interesting line there where they believed, but they would not openly share their faith in verses 42 and 43 or live out their faith because why? They had this sort of fear of being kicked out because they loved the glory or the praise that came from humans more than the glory and praise that came from the creator, from God himself. And I think there's this really profound question to kind of sit in a little bit and ask. Like, these people, 2,000 years ago, weren't willing to openly live out their faith. Even though Jesus is openly declaring and inviting anyone and everyone at risk to his own life, Jesus is openly showing what the Father is like, showing what God is like, inviting anyone to come in. And these people 2,000 years ago are like, "Oh, I'd rather just kind of stay in my own powerful place and you know, keep the status quo and keep my role and not really have to live it out publicly. And we can just kind of go, oh, and just kind of look down on those people 2,000 years ago. But there's also the question of kind of what prevents us at times from living out our faith? What prevents us from actually declaring the goodness and the grace of Jesus in our own lives? You know, I get that that is, it's a it's not an easy thing to do, you know, especially in our culture. You know, I, I know for me, oftentimes it's like, because Christianity kind of has this kind of weird reputation in our culture right now, it's like Christianity is associated with kind of X, Y, and Z, like maybe on the news or whatever. I'm like, I don't want anyone to know that I'm a Christian because I don't want to be associated with X, Y, and Z. I don't know if you ever felt like that before. But again, when when I say that, like what's at the root of that? It's, It's fear, right? It's fear of what other people might think or say about me. You know, just the other day we were, I took our car into the, to the mechanic, to get an oil change or whatever. And the mechanic, he, someone I kind of regularly see, you know, whatever, doing the car thing. And he was asking me how work was. And I told him that, you know, I recently got a new job. I'm actually working at our church. And at the moment I said that, like my heart starts pounding, like really fast, you know, because I get all nervous. And he starts asking me questions like, what church? And like, what is that about? And I'm like, oh no, I'm like in this, you know, you know, really deep conversation, like over my head. And it's this Kind of fear thing of like actually publicly sharing and talking about my faith is something that I personally struggle with. You know, I can easily get intimidated and easily just kind of, you know, back off and not want to like give into, you know, whatever. And I just say that because I, I understand, I sympathize with that tendency to maybe not want to publicly live out our, our relationship, our apprenticeship to Jesus. But Jesus is inviting you and inviting me. To not just kind of hide and give in to fear. You know, fear is is a very suffocating way to live. It's a very honestly kind of dehumanizing way. It just kind of, kind of constrains all that God wants to do in and through our lives. And that Jesus' invitation is not to give in to fear. But what if instead of giving into fear, we live the more beautiful story of the gospel? We lived the story, the Jesus story of good news that that centered around his love, his sacrificial love for you and for me and lived out that story, not giving into fear, not even giving into critique. As much as it's easy to critique all the different things that are out there, what if it was a story of compassion, of service, of faithfulness, of gentleness, that we, in the words of Jesus, would actually be known by the love that we have for one another, as Jesus said, we would be known for. What if we lived into that narrative, the narrative of love, self-sacrificial love, as opposed to fear? And I think there's just this beautiful invitation. Again, this is the invitation of Jesus to live in his way, to see that his way is actually good news. Which leads me to my last point here, that true belief leads to transformation. You know, verse 44, again, Jesus is inviting everyone to believe, anyone to trust. And the thing is, is that everyone in this room or even outside of this room is believing in something or someone. It's like Bob Dylan's famous line, everyone's got to serve somebody, right? Well, everyone's believing in someone or something, whether it be the narrative of consumerism or materialism that says the more you have, the, more, the better off you'll be. That, there's a belief that's happening there. Or the narrative of personal fulfillment, if you just fulfill your own desires, there is a trust that if you go down that path, you will have a certain kind of life, or if you follow a particular person or a celebrity and, and adopt their lifestyle, there is a belief that is happening there. see belief is not just a spiritual thing or religious thing it is a it's a human thing. Everyone has belief in someone or something, and the thing is is that belief doesn't just mean i I, I think or agree to certain, you know, intellectual thoughts or doctrines. You know, I love theology. You know, doctrine matters for sure. But the biblical idea of belief is not just agreeing to certain ideas, as important as that can be and is. But belief, whether it's human belief in general or belief in the way of Jesus, means living a new life, a transformative life, adopting different practices and rhythms in our life that conform us more into someone or something. And in our case, That's Jesus. See, everyone, every human being in this planet, on this planet, is being transformed. Transformation is not just a religious thing, just like belief isn't just a religious thing. Transformation is a human thing. Everyone is being transformed into someone or something. The question is, who or what are we being transformed into? And the invitation of Jesus is to be more and more aligned and transformed into his image. That's why Jesus says and he is inviting that people would no longer remain or stay in darkness, but remain and stay in light. The invitation is not to just stay in the dark places and spaces, but to abide. It's the same word that, that word for stay. In the narrative there in verse 44 is not just this regular word for stay; It's the same word that's used for abide later on in John's gospel. That Jesus is inviting us to abide and remain in him, to be transformed in his presence. That's why, again, he says, everyone who believes in me should not stay in darkness. That Jesus is after not just us agreeing on certain you know, intellectual things, as important again as that is, but as Dallas Lord says, the renovation of our hearts, being transformed from the inside out, being more conformed into his image. You know, I love what Marianne Thompson says about John's use of belief in John's narrative. She says this, a scholar, New Testament scholar on John. She says, John's vocabulary of faith, following, believing, knowing, and seeing is used to refer both to the initial response and to the ongoing commitment to Jesus. See, John's characteristic word abide, or meno, denotes the persistence or faithfulness that must characterize Jesus' disciples. Those disciples who have believed in Jesus will know the truth if they continue to abide in him. Knowing and believing in Jesus cannot be separated from the actual practice of discipleship, from following him, from seeing what he does, and in being with him and coming to understand who he is. Now, I know that's a lot, but I love that last line especially. Believing in Jesus cannot be separated from the actual practice of discipleship. That the two go together. I think it's easy in our English language to think believing and belief is just like a mental thing. But in the biblical worldview, it is that, but it's more than that. It's a whole life posture in trust and allegiance, placing our full trust and allegiance on Jesus that we might be more transformed. That's why we're constantly here at Wellspring talking about the practices of Jesus, practicing the way of Jesus, things like ABLE, a simple acronym that to help us remember some of the core practices, A for attend, attending, what is God saying to you? Spending time each week, hearing the voice of God in your life or B for bless, blessing people inside and outside the church, practical, small ways that we might be able to do that. Or L, learning from the scriptures, learning the teachings in the way of Jesus. And finally, E for E, to, to celebrate and eat with people both inside and outside the church. See, as followers of Jesus, we need Jesus-shaped patterns in our lives. Jesus-shaped patterns to help conform us and transform us into Jesus's image. You know, because th- we, we live, I think, in sort of a patternless culture, a culture that is sort of ruled by our own desires And we have to ask ourselves that question, like, where is that getting us? Where is that getting us? But the invitation of Jesus is to adopt his patterns, his practices, his way of living. The invitation is open for anyone and everyone. You know, I I wish sometimes that, you know, spiritual transformation would just kind of be like the matrix, you know, just plug in and download, you know, download spirituality, download, you know, faithfulness and just boom. just walk out of church one Sunday morning and just be completely transformed, right? But let's be honest, that's not often the case, unless you're just super spiritual or something. But that's not often how it works because, because our God is a relational God. Our God desires relationship with us. And as we are abiding in him, remaining in him through the practices of Sabbath, silence and solitude, scripture reading, living in community, celebrating and eating together, and so much more, as we abide with him, Our relational God is transforming us by the power of his spirit in and through our lives. And this invitation to believe is to live this out openly and to see that God wants to bring transformation to your life and to my life. I think we often, at least there's moments in my life where I think, you know, it's just, it's like too difficult or it's too hard. And we just kind of want to just stop. And, and not continue on. It's just easy to kind of just get sucked into the, the routines of our moment and our culture. But I think the invitation for us today is to see and to respond to Jesus's heart that whoever would believe in him is invited to experience this eternal, abundant life that can only be found in him. And in thus doing so, be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. You know, as I close, I wanna invite the, the worship team to come up. And as we close, and as we respond now, just in a time of singing and worship, I just want to invite all of us here this morning, wherever you find yourself, maybe you've had an amazing week. You know, maybe your week has been, you know, really difficult or really hard. Maybe you feel like you don't belong, or that you're not worthy to even be here this morning. Or maybe you have so many questions, and not really sure about this believing in jesus sort of thing like what is this really all about i just want to say that you are you're welcome here this is a place where no matter where you come from no matter how long or how little you've been following jesus that we're all on this journey together and that jesus invites all of us to believe and trust to trust that his way is good news that his life is the good and beautiful life that he, Jesus is the way that leads to the truth about who God really is that will lead us into the way of living the reality in the reality of God's kingdom. Why don't we stand and pray together? Jesus, in this place and in this moment, we ask, Lord, that you would just remind us of your faithfulness to us that you would speak words of comfort over our lives and the God that you would again remind us of how much you love us and are for us. For those of us who maybe walk in here this morning confused and hurting, I pray, Lord, that you would be the God of all comfort to them this morning. For those of us who maybe aren't sure about this Jesus thing, I pray, Lord, that you would just reveal just a little bit more of who you truly are to them. And that for us in this place this morning, that we would respond towards you. Just a little bit closer to you, Jesus. We ask for more of your presence in your life today. We pray these things in your name. Amen.